Welcome to Inspirational Australians, where we share stories of Australians making a difference in their communities and in the lives of others. We at Inspirational Australians acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways on which this podcast is produced. We pay our respect to elders past and present and those who are emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. At Inspirational Australians, we are inspired by the world's oldest living culture and pay homage to their rich storytelling history when we share stories on our podcast. Hello and welcome to the Inspirational Australians podcast for your weekly dose of inspiration. So you're with me, Josh Griffin from Awards Australia. And people often ask Awards Australia, what is it? Because uh, it can be an ambiguous name. Essentially, we only run awards programs. So kind of event management, kind of community involvement and engagement. But it's always around awards because we believe that awards programs are the perfect vehicle for sharing inspirational stories. And that's just what we do. The nominations come in. In this case, we're talking about Young Achieve Awards with our guest today for young people doing incredible things that need to be celebrated, that need to be promoted. And the judging process helps us to you know, identify the most impactful stories, the ones that are really standing out. And then through a promotional campaign and our awards nights, we're able to share those stories to the public. And so that's why we love awards programs. Uh, and that's just a little bit about what we do. Uh, and obviously the podcast is... Uh, a great way to share those stories as well. This episode is brought to you by Spirit Super, the super fund for hardworking Australians. Apart from being one of Australia's easiest super funds to deal with, Spirit Super is also the proud sponsor of the Young Australian Achiever Awards right across the nation. That's because as a super fund, Spirit Super knows the importance of investing in your future. More importantly, they're committed to using your hard-earned super savings to invest in initiatives that build a brighter future for us all. Whether it's celebrating our community champions or supporting local businesses, technology and innovation, Spirit Super is helping make a real difference. So if you're looking for a super fund that's invested in you and your future, it all starts with Spirit. For more info, go to spiritsuper.com.au. Consider the PDS and TMD at spiritsuper.com.au slash PDS before making a decision. The issuer is Motor Trade Association of Australia Superannuation Fund, PDYLTD, and advice is provided by Quadrant First, PDYLTD. So thanks, Spirit Super, and on to today's guest, who was actually the 2022 winner of the Spirit Super Create Change Award in New South Wales and ACT, someone that I've had the pleasure of meeting twice before and both times left a profound impact with me, the way they spoke, the way they presented themselves, and the genuine passion for helping others and, and youth really shone through. So that guest is, of course, uh, Angelique Wan, who also was announced as the 2022 Young Achiever of the Year for New South Wales ACT. So I'd say, Angelique, welcome. And also you're probably the most credentialed guest I've had on this podcast. So uh, <laughs> thanks for Thank joining Thank you, Josh. That's such a flattering and kind introduction. Absolutely welcome. Um, and I, yeah, obviously meant every single word of it. So just to fill in uh, guests who might be, you know, hearing about you for the first time, you co-founded and you're CEO of Consent Labs. Tell me if I'm getting any of this wrong. A non-for-profit that revolutionises the discussion around sexual consent. And obviously you started that uh, you know, as a co-founder, which I'm always interested in, in how that works as a co-founding mm. situation. I'll ask you about that later. But it's focused on developing an evidence-based program, consulted and built relationships with experts and conducted, this is what the Consent Labs has done, conducted focus group discussions for market research. And I understand you even left a corporate job to work in this full time and devote your attention to it, reaching yep, over 10,000 students. We've actually now reached over 50,000 students. Jeez, a lot's changed in 18 A months. lot has changed. It has, yeah, yeah. That's pretty full on. So, yeah, so uh, welcome. You know, what's happening with you this morning just to start things off? It's been a really good morning just catching up with the team and it's really exciting to be able to use the word team now because, as you just said, Josh, a lot has changed in the past couple of months, which means really growing out the internal capacity that we have to be able to make impact. So we're now a team of almost 20 people um, and to think that 
you know, just two years ago, I was the first and only employee and how that has really changed. So, yeah, a really lovely morning just catching up with a couple of team members and and seeing what they've got on their plate. That's, yeah, rapid growth and, uh, and very exciting because I think a lot of people associate rapid growth with, you know, startups like tech in the finance industry, mm. pharmaceuticals and things like that. But this is yeah. something that's focused on really helping people and making a difference in education and people's lives. So how have you kind of, you know, had that startup approach, but in a not-for-profit way? Um, I think that's a really good question because I think sometimes there's a perception that not-for-profits don't operate like a business. I don't think that ethos is true at all. Um, I actually think you know, we're a not-for-profit because impact to us, the positive impact on social justice is ultimately our driving force and our mission. But at the same time, we have a duty to make sure that we are operating as efficiently as any for-profit organisation would to make sure that we are making good money choices, our decisions are founded in good governance and all of that we do to make sure that we can exist sustainably as an organisation to get to the impact that we started Consent Labs for, which is ultimately to end gender-based violence. Yeah, well, it's a good approach to take, isn't it? Because if you take mm. that business-like approach, you're obviously going to be able to do a lot more. Um, I think you know a lot of not-for-profits and charities have the best intents the best thoughts at, at hand, but if you're only de- devoting a little bit of time to it, it's hard to make much impact. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the goal of eliminating gender-based violence in Australia, it's a big goal. It's going to take more than years. It's going to take decades. And so Consent Labs needs to be around for that amount of time if we're really going to make and see systemic change. So I think just being really wise about the way in which we operate as an organization even though we are a not-for-profit i suppose to some people you know tackling gender-based violence can sound quite abstract you know do you find Mm. yourself having to explain having to you know justify yourself even on, on what you're doing i do i think that there's a lot more awareness in broader community now than there was seven years ago when we started consent labs and to be honest Even then, I didn't have the vocabulary or the language or the understanding myself to properly explain it. I started Consent Labs, I think, just because I could feel, you know, the daily occurrence of gender-based violence in my own life. But essentially, it is an acknowledgement that a lot of sexual family and domestic violence is rooted in gender and that statistically women are more likely to be victims of those forms of violence Um, and that things like gender inequality are real drivers of sexual violence and real drivers of the reason why women are overrepresented in those statistics. But it's also, you know, I think a lot of the my role is explaining why the work that we do is really important in addressing gender-based violence because there's a lot of different ways in which you can fix things or try to end things and we are just one piece of the puzzle. Um, The piece that we work in is uh, prevention, so trying to prevent violence before it happens in the first place or at least ensuring that people have a knowledge or an understanding of where they can seek support if something non-consensual has happened. And what age, you know, students and, and people are you talking to? Because um, obviously, from what I've heard, being a dad of a uh, six and five-year-old, mm. you know, everything is all uh, just learning our ABCs and our numbers, but from people, parents who have kids in high school and things, like, and young people themselves, you know, directly, obviously, um, you know, sex is, is becoming so prevalent at young ages and being exposed to things online. So, you know, this kind of stuff is really important from a young age. Yeah, it is. So the 
average age that a person engages in sex is about 15 years old. Um, the average age that a person will watch pornography is about 13 years old, just to give you an idea of maybe when people are starting to engage in sexual activity. At Consent Labs, our our passion is young people. That's why we started the organisation and why the organisation is youth-led and youth-driven. Um, we have a real passion for working with students in the school space and in the university space and ensuring that they are empowered with knowledge and language. But we also work with the people that support and are role models to young people. So people like parents and carers, so like yourself, Josh, um, but also the teachers and the educators of young people so that everyone sort of has a shared understanding of what, you know, a healthy or respectful relationship looks like or what sexual violence looks like. Um, and it's just a faster way to move the needle if, you know, a whole of community is able to understand and really support young people to engage in, in healthy relationships. So right now we only work with um, as young as high school students. So we'll start working with students from sort of year seven onwards. Um, but consent education or respect for relationships education should absolutely start at an earlier age. It's just about delivering it in an age appropriate way. So you're obviously not starting to talk about sex when your kids are as young as yours are, Josh, um, but you can still start to have conversations around, you know, what consent is and bodily autonomy and setting boundaries and, and just those sorts of conversations. For sure. Um, yeah, I'm really loving that there's, you know, children's books now that are focused on bodies and what that means to have, you know, being the boss of your own body and um, mm what that means and using you know an anatomically correct terms and things like that because yeah I wasn't aware of any of that stuff you know oh neither so um no, I definitely neither. can see that there's great stuff happening and obviously the work that you're doing is a huge part of, of bringing people up um so you mentioned high school and uh we're going to come back to consent labs soon but I want to just kind of rewind back and and talk about you being in high school because mm. you know I'm trying to do the maths here you're saying seven years ago kind of co-founding consent consent labs and uh yeah. you may have been in high school or around that age and i know that you know you had a lot on your plate in high school um, between academic life you know volunteering extracurricular stuff mm. you know, what were you doing in high school were you aware of all this stuff at that age or um were you just blissfully unaware of running through life what happened to angelica at that age i was not at all thinking about consent labs or I actually had no idea what the word consent was or that it impacted my relationships because it was never taught to me. So it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't on my mind when I was in high school. I was very academically focused. I grew up in a culturally diverse household. So my mum is Greek and my dad is Chinese and to them academics was everything. Um, so I really cared about studying, about doing well. I put a lot of pressure on myself to, you know, get the best marks that I could. Um, and I was really focused on university, um, and setting myself up as best as I could to get into a like, quote unquote, good degree at university. That was sort of like where all my energy was really focused on at school. Yeah, it's um, it's funny looking back and thinking how much it was about got to get that score, mm. get to that course. I remember as well, I was way lazier at school. <laughs> I um, <laughs> found it just easy enough to get decent grades but couldn't be bothered putting in the work to kind of get up to those amazing grades. Um, mm. I remember missing out on the course I wanted by such a small Oh, amount no. like I can't remember it, was, it wasn't even one point or whatever it was anyway oh, thinking no. oh maybe I'll get it as a second you know preference or something yeah I never did and I was really disappointed at the time and what was yeah. that course oh, I was just a um, bachelor of marketing but again it was at a certain mm. university yeah um, and that kind of thing so or maybe it was a double degree whatever it was it was like a specific type of marketing degree and I ended yeah. up doing a different just business but um mm. looking back yeah that was a bit not silly at all but it's just funny that was such a clear uh, focus. Yeah, so I, I mean, that, like anything other than 
applying myself wasn't a choice. Like my parents, like I said, were really focused on academic results. You know, they didn't have the opportunity for education themselves when they were growing up. And so they saw it as a real privilege. Um, And I guess as a result, they really expected me and my sister as well to apply ourselves and to, to try. Yeah. So the pressure was on from yourself and from, was on. and from yep. uh, parents. Yeah. Um, does that mean you kind of had a limited social life as well? Yeah, I would say my parents were pretty strict. I wasn't allowed to date in school. Um, I had a really good group of friends. I would say I've always been quite lucky in friendship in just being surrounded by really good quality people and having good people around me. And I was social to, to a certain degree, but I wasn't a rebellious child. I was not a rebellious child. That was that was my sister. Yep. <laughs> younger sister? <laughs> yeah, younger sister. I was like the very classic sort of eldest in the family, like goody two-shoes, um, very responsible. Yeah. That's so funny. The cliches <laughs> are a classic for a reason, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They, are. they honestly are. So... You're going through high school um, and then, yeah, what was your, uh, you, you, you mentioned that course. Did you did you make that course that you had in your sites that you had targeted? I honestly had no clear direction of what I wanted to do at university. I just knew that I had to get into university. Like there was yeah. no discussion of anything else. Like my parents wouldn't have allowed me to take a gap year. Um, I never considered something like TAFE. I never considered something like entrepreneurship or starting my own thing. Like it was a really sort of, I guess, traditional version of success or like a really sort of traditional path that I was on. But but that's what my parents thought would be best for me. And I, I didn't really know how to argue otherwise because, yeah, I just had no clear direction of of what I wanted for myself or what I felt really passionate about. So in the absence of that passion, I was like, okay, I guess, you know, this sounds good. So yeah, when it came to sort of year 12 and thinking about what I wanted to do next, I it's just sort of grappled with all of the really sort of usual stuff. Like, do I do med? Do I do business? Do I do law? Like, I don't know, none of it really grabbed me. It wasn't like I sort of woke up and I was like, yes, this is what I see for myself. Um, But I ended up getting into a cooperative scholarship at UTS, which I accepted because it, one, was a scholarship, which was really nice, and two, uh, gave me internship experiences throughout my degree. And I I really liked the idea of having sort of practical um, experiences instead of just sort of theoretically sitting at uni so I ended up accepting that degree and and going on to study you know accounting and finance um but again it wasn't something where I particularly felt passionate about it was sort of just the the best opportunity that was presented to me at that time so I took it yeah well I don't want to anger any accounting finance people out there but yeah you're much more interesting than the normal uh mold of accounting finance um (laughs) types so yeah yeah that does sound like a really cool idea though where you get to have those internships and was that at multiple companies yeah I I honestly loved it I feel like every single degree should do something similar um so my degree was for three years and I got two six-month internships throughout the three years at two different companies and it was just so I feel like you learn so much more on the job than in uni like I think uni is great for the foundations but being able to apply it is just a completely other thing a a much better way of learning and to also be able to start to build the soft skills of how do you exist in a company in an organization how do you build relationships how do you be professional how do you send an email how do you set up a meeting invite just like all those really small Mm. things and and all the soft skills I think was really fantastic to sort of start to develop, I guess, ahead of maybe a lot of other people. I loved it. I really loved the practical applications that my degree gave me. And so 
you've done your degree, you're um, interning. I understand that you uh, studied at Oxford for a little while or you had an experience to go over there. Where did that fit uh, in the timeline? Yeah, that was an amazing opportunity. It actually happened um, during high school. I think I was in between year 10 and 11 or maybe year 11 and 12. Um, And it was just a short summer course, uh, so a couple of weeks long. But it was really amazing because you learn alongside people from all over the world. So just great in terms of exposure great for independence that was the first time that I'd sort of lived away from home for the first time and that really I loved I loved the independence to be honest yeah, um, I feel like you either go one or two ways of that you'd like all right this is great I want more of this or no thanks I loved it <laughs> I loved it um and it was interesting because you could sort of choose which subjects you wanted to to do and I ended up choosing I think a lot of psychology related subjects because there was a point in my life where I really thought that that's what I'd want to do. And through those courses at Oxford, I was like, okay, no, maybe I don't want to do this. This is not what I thought. So it was good just to be able to try something new and see whether I liked it and then ultimately decide that I didn't. But, you know, if I hadn't had that opportunity to try it out, um, I might have ended up doing it in uni and might have hated it. So, Mm. yeah, I really loved, I loved that those couple of weeks. They were amazing. Yeah, I like the kind of idea that, you know, if you have the right mindset, you either win or you mm. learn. You know, we don't yeah. really lose uh, in life. Um, yeah. So I think that's, a, you know, it's what you're saying as well. Psychology was yeah. great. The experience was amazing. It wasn't a waste. You've learned so much and it helped push you in a, a different direction that was more in the right path. So Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And I think it's, It's also sort of just taking that first step and trying something out. I think, you know, if I could go back and give my year 12 cents a piece of advice, I think it it would just be take that first step. I think I was so paralysed by choice and paralysed by the fear that I would make the wrong choice and I would set myself down a path that I would hate and I'd never be able to turn back. But that's not true. I think with every step that you take, more and more opportunities will present themselves that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise and you'll be able to seize on those opportunities and pivot and swivel in whatever direction you want to go but you've just got to make that first step um so yeah it's always it's a win or it's a learning opportunity as you say all right so uh i I want to get back to the uh the internships and, and things like that because uh you started moving, you know, after your degree or, or during with those internships into quite a corporate career mm. pathway. Yep. So was that just a natural next step? You know, you were talking about that classic pathway from high school to university into corporate world. At the time, do you remember being, you know, really excited to kind of land that first major job after uni or um, were you still not sure which way you wanted to go? It was a mix of both of those emotions. I was definitely excited. I ended up um, getting accepted to the grad program at Macquarie Bank. And I think I was really swayed by those traditional ideals of success, you know, getting a highly sought after, really competitive job in a global organisation that can give you heaps of opportunities, even opportunities to move overseas in an industry that's well paid and you know seen as sort of reputable or respectable like I think all those sort of like really traditional ideas of success made me excited um but I was also sort of I think confused because I wasn't particularly passionate about finance like I don't know if people are passionate about finance I'm sure there are some people that are but it wasn't like I was waking up every day and I was like, yeah, finance. I'm so excited to spend my day on this. So I think it was, you know, a bit of both of those emotions. Like, yes, I'm excited by success, I guess you could say, but I'm also, I guess, a bit lost. And maybe I grappled with questions around passion and purpose 
and wondering whether I would ever find my passion or purpose in life and whether most people do, should I be spending more time exploring that? But it's also a really scary thing to to make the time and space to to do that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely a mix of emotions I was feeling at that stage. Might have to put a bit of a content warning on this podcast for people in the accounting and banking industries. Just don't listen. <laughs> no, to be honest, like <laughs> I'm really grateful for my degree. I think it's actually come in a lot of handy in the role I am now. Yeah, I obviously didn't end up staying in that field. So, yeah. <laughs> content warning. So you're pretty young at this stage, like obviously you're, you're a young person now still, but uh, was there anything in your life that was, you know, helping you to kind of formulate these questions? Because to me, and it's just my personal take on it, they seem like questions that might be for someone who's, you know, been in their career for say five, 10 years and they're thinking, mm. oh, okay, I don't know if I want to keep going this way. You're having them really early, those questions. Mm. I would say I've always been a bit of a deep thinker, always quite introspective, reflective, maybe even a bit philosophical. Um, I would also say that with the degree, you know, having those two six-month internship experiences like really sort of accelerated my career and just the time that I'd sort of, you know, already spent working. So I was having, I was sort of used to operating in a corporate environment, you know, before most people would have their first graduate experience so I'd already sort of gotten acclimated to what it was like and the rhythm of working and then sort of the questions that come after you've had that honeymoon phase of being in a job for you know six months a year or two years um so yeah I think a little bit of it is just my natural sort of inclination to to think to think deep so is this where uh, consent labs is starting to form in your mind or you know you're getting ideas about maybe I don't want to be in corporate world I had actually started working on consent labs throughout uni um so while I was studying while I was doing these internships I had started building consent labs with my co-founder Joyce um and for whatever reason you know I had really big goals and a really big vision of what consent labs could be and what it could achieve and the impact that it could have but I never really let myself dream that it would be my full-time job or that I would be the one sort of leading the organization I think I was still yeah sort of stuck on that traditional path and the idea of maybe deviating from that a a little bit was scary to to be honest it it felt like quite a quite a big risk, particularly in those early years. You know, we started Consent Labs in 2016 and that was a period of time in which no one was talking about consent. There was actually quite a lot of taboo and shame around the topic. I rarely discussed it with um, anyone that I thought wouldn't get it. Yeah. I didn't talk to my parents about it um, because I knew they wouldn't get it and... Yeah, it was in the first few years there was just no traction at all. So to to sort of imagine myself as, you know, leaving the really safe and stable career path of, of banking or corporate to to take a risk didn't feel real. Um, but, yeah, Consent Labs, Consent Labs was sort of plugging away in the background whilst I was doing those internships and sort of having those corporate experiences. Yeah, and so you mentioned your co-founder there, Joyce. Where did you meet? Joyce um and mm-hmm. what was that shared passion like that's what I'm interested in. you know I said at the top with co-founders depends on who they are too is it like a family member is it a close friend or someone you just met and all of a yep. sudden something spark clicks and you're like oh we've got this shared passion let's do it yeah it was the latter for Joyce and I so I've known Joyce since primary school we went to the same school and pretty much grew up together um we sort of went separate ways uh, when we went to university, we were on separate university campuses studying separate degrees, but very much remained close friends. And I think we're having conversations about our shared experiences living on different university campuses, particularly having conversations around shared experiences of, of sort of sexual violence being the norm, particularly things like sexual harassment just being like an absolute daily occurrence, not just for us, but for a lot of our peers. 
um, and sort of grappling with questions around, well, is this illegal? Am I making a big deal out of this? Do I have the right to tell anyone or to seek support or to report it? And I don't think either of us really launched into this to build a business. We really launched into this to make a difference and we saw such an opportunity and such a gap in the market in terms of consent education being done in the way that we felt was important that, yeah, we sort of just very naively deep dived <laughs> into consent labs. Yeah. Well, firstly, gross that that stuff was such a prevalent mm. occurrence, you know, and secondly, for men who don't get it, unfortunately, they're just the yeah. reason that, that this exists and they're probably going to be pretty tricky to win over because they just can't understand it for some reason. It's uh, very sad, but, you know, you've obviously taken these really negative uh, mm. situations and experiences and um, tried to, yeah, to do something that people hadn't, as you were saying, it wasn't a big conversation at the time. And yeah. bringing it into the conversation, that's pretty, uh, it's pretty huge stuff. Yeah, and I think, I mean, to sort of the question that you raised before, I think that was honestly the saving grace of having a co-founder um, and a co-founder that you trust. Like I think having a friendship before starting a business was a real, I think a real bonus and a real positive. It has been a real positive for us knowing that the other person gets you gets it, understands your strength, your weaknesses, your communication style. That's really important. Um, but I think having a co-founder has been amazing in being able to move through really challenging times, whether that's because, you know, the space that we work in is just hard sometimes or because you face rejection. Um, I think being able to do this work alongside someone is just so much more more motivating. I don't. I definitely could not have done this alone. So when uh, is the decision, and it might have been kind of uh, lingering for a while, to act officially turn your back on this mm. corporate career that you've worked really hard to get yourself into? Um, and side question: What did your parents say? <laughs> what <are> you <laughs> Yeah, there was definitely a turning point. There was a very clear turning point for Consent Labs and for me personally in 2021. As I sort of have said up until that point, um, there was a real void of conversation around consent and we were finding it really hard to um, get buy-in from any school or any university. No one wanted to work with us. No one wanted to take the risk on Two young people, no one wanted to take the risk on having conversations around consent. It just felt too hard. Um, and so our business wasn't viable up until 2021. Um, but at that point, you know, a couple of really key figures um, started to speak really loudly on consent and um, institutional responsibility as well. So I'm thinking of the likes of Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins and Chanel Contos and consent really sort of came to the fore in a way that it hadn't before. So we started to see a real increase in demand for our services at Consent Labs. So that was one piece of it. You know, the, the business was getting really busy and there was no one working on it full time. But at that same Point in my life, I had just been offered a role in London and a role in New York with Macquarie. And so it was a real sort of crossroads moment for me where I had to decide, do I continue to go down this path of sort of, you know, corporate success and, and what I'd always envisioned for myself, or do I just risk it all and take a leap of faith and really back myself to do this thing that I care so deeply about and it was a lot of conversations with Joyce a lot of conversations with my partner um, and ultimately I decided this is it's a now or never moment you know this moment in time in Australia where we are seeing so much focus and so much action around consent is never going to come again and 
I would probably kick myself in a couple of years if I didn't take the opportunity to just see what we could do. And I really believed in our education program at Consent Labs. I knew that there was a need for it. I knew that young people liked what we had. And so I, yeah, just decided to to give it a go. I had a conversation with my manager at Macquarie and fully expected him to not get it, but he was actually so incredibly supportive. He said, take 12 months off from work and go try it out, see how you go. If it doesn't go well, you can come back. If it does go well, you just keep going. Um, and so that's that's what I did. And my parents didn't get it. <laughs> my dad thought I was working on a website. <laughs> um, and my mom was really apprehensive. I think to her, you know, sort of talking about those really traditional ideas of success, like she thought I'd made it you know, having studied really hard at university and having gotten myself uh, a good job and a stable job, um, she thought I was set. And so, yeah, she really, she didn't understand. Um, Initially, she thought it was incredibly risky, but it's taken her some time. It's taken them both some time, but I think they they understand it now. (laughs) Yeah. And that's such a tricky one with um, parents. And, you know, we, we know that they want the best for their kids. They want the best for us and it's coming from the right place. But it is. It's hard. It doesn't make it any easier when the can feel like, why aren't you backing me? You know, why aren't you yeah. supporting me? So that's a tricky one. And you know, all credit to you on having the guts to make that tough choice. Um and uh sticking it out. And you know, people don't do things to be nominated or win awards, but keeping mm. ahead in my run sheet here, but um, you know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to receive some of the accolades you have, you have, you know, that must be affirming to say, wow, I made the right choice. Yeah, it absolutely is. I think you're right in that I, I don't do the work for the accolades, the impact that we're able to make and the feedback that we get from, from students, from their parents, from their teachers is so motivating. That's the reason why I do the work, but those awards are also so special, I think, to to even encourage me to sort of take a moment to pause and reflect on the journey and how incredibly challenging it has been at so many points. But the fact that we persevered and we're here and the true change that we're making in the world. And I think it also serves a purpose to continue to raise awareness for the need for this education and for the continued need to focus on making change in this space specifically. So, yeah, I think I really value the accolades in as being an opportunity to, to reflect and to be a bit proud of myself. I'm not good at, at doing that naturally. So I think, yeah, the awards are, are really I guess, valuable for that reason for me personally. Yep. So what's day one of you full-time employee of Consent Labs? I'm picturing you sitting just like at a desk kind of, you know, yep. okay, what do I do? <laughs> How was it? Or was oh it just because you was busy and it was ready and it was uh, time just to dive in? No, it was chaotic. It was definitely a massive learning curve. Personally and professionally, I would say it was me just doing the absolute most (laughs) and doing a bit of everything, you know, doing the partnerships, doing the finance, doing the social media, doing the strategy, like just doing everything and never feeling like it was enough or never feeling like my to-do list was anywhere near done. Um, And I think for someone like myself who you know, clearly puts a lot of pressure on themselves. That was a real learning curve for me personally um, in in how I manage sort of expectations and how I speak to myself and, you know, all of that. How do you be an entrepreneur, I think, is a skill that no one really teaches you or at least wasn't a a conversation that I was having when I was in school or in uni. I think times are sort of changing now. But, yeah, it it was a real learning curve and it was 
it was chaotic. It took a while to like get into a bit of a rhythm. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah did you struggle with the balance at first? Because when you've got a Absolutely. target, a goal that is so big as yours, it's so wide reaching. You could work 24 hours every day because, yeah. you know, it's not like a job where, oh, done all my tasks, I'm done for the day. You know, yeah. you have to draw a line somewhere because otherwise, uh, yeah. yeah, you can burn out. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, I still struggle with that to this day. I think it's a little bit better now that I've got a team and I've sort of had now two and a half years to figure out how to find balance. But in those early days, yeah, it was all consuming. And I think, again, that was the benefit of having Joyce as a co-founder to sort of be that voice of reason to say, you also need to look after yourself. Like the to-do list will always be there and it will always be growing, but you have to trust that you've done enough for today. Um, you've probably done more than enough for today and you should be really proud of that. So, yeah, I think it's having good people around you as well to, to remind you that work-life balance is important. <laughs> and uh, what's it like, you know, I love that you were talking about you were doing the social media, you're doing everything, all the little things, yeah, transitioning from I'm doing it all to now, okay, I've got team members. Uh, I have to, you know, not only let them do it, empower them to do it and own it. Mm, I've got to, mm. I've got to put my focus on these other areas, which is, uh, you know, where my attention needs to go. Has that been difficult? Like, yes and no. On one hand, it's honestly been fantastic. I think it really forces you to better understand your own strengths and weaknesses and, you know, build a team where your weaknesses are specifically. Um, and I think it's really just highlighted how much faster the company can grow um, when you've got people with the appropriate skill sets doing the things. Like I'm specifically thinking about marketing as an example. I don't come from a marketing background. I had no idea how to tackle our marketing strategy or channels or like all of that sort of stuff. And we've just recently hired someone in a head of marketing role and to just see their capabilities, their ideas, their skill sets, I'm just like, wow, I could never have achieved this. Um, if I was doing it myself. But there is also a bit of a challenge with, I guess, sort of loss of control. Um, yeah. And that's just something that I have had to get used to. I think, yeah, when you've been doing something for so long and it's your baby and you really care about it, it's hard to sort of give that control away. But... I also feel really lucky in that my team are so passionate about the work that we do at Consent Lab. They they get the mission, they get our vision and our values. Um, and so I have full trust in the decisions that they're making and the work that they're putting out there. Yeah. Do you find being, I'm not sure how to phrase this question, but, you know, because the, the values and the mission is obviously the, the absolute why mm. you do yeah is that make it harder to get the right people in or does it make it easier because you know you can easily just see okay they're not a fit it makes it easier it makes it so easy in an interview if someone doesn't know our mission or doesn't know our values it comes across so quickly um in the first couple of minutes and that's um that's an instant no for me like i think the the mission and the why we exist is is really core to Consent Labs, as I think it is for a lot of not-for-profits. Like, you really have to resonate with that in order to be a good fit. So, yeah, it makes it easier. Yeah. And so with this team now behind you, um, with a couple of years under your belt of, uh, of leading the ship, you know, what's next? What's on the horizon for Consent Labs? It's a really exciting moment of time for us so we are currently based in new south wales the entire team is based in new south wales but obviously the demand for consent education is all across australia and we've been seeing a lot of demand coming up from other states um so in 2024 we'll be setting up a team in victoria in melbourne um to be able to cater to that community better and more holistically so that's incredibly exciting to be able to expand our team and make more impact on the ground. And to support that work, we are about to launch a campaign for um, end of year 
It's called Charity Kringle. And the idea behind that is that every year Australians spend $179 million on wasted and unwanted Christmas gifts, often for, you know, a Kris Kringle. Um, but how powerful could it be if instead you give the gift of impact and you make that money count by donating it to charities? So we're gathering a collective of charities in Australia that all work and support young people in some ways. You know, it might be First Nations people, young people. It might be young people um, of disability or young people's mental health. And we're encouraging people to make donations to those charities as their Chris Kringle gifts. So, yeah, well, two exciting pieces on the cards for us. That is. I mean, I'm an excellent gift purchaser. Mm. So, but definitely I receive a lot of unwanted gifts. Yeah, yeah. So let your friends know or your family Charity know. Kringle. No, but that'll Charity make Kringle. purchasing easier for me because I put yep. so much effort into it. I'm like, oh, what am I going to get? I have to really, you know deep diving into perfect gift. This is great because uh, it's you such a You know your money's initiative. going towards impact. Exactly. And supporting yep. young people. Yep. And, uh, yeah, it's a really good idea. And how can people, you know, if they're wanting to purchase that as, a, as one of their Chris Kringle gifts, where do they go? You can go onto our Instagram at Consent Labs or our website www.consentlabs.org.au. The campaign will be going live beginning of December. Yep. Perfect. Well, this podcast is probably coming out in that first week of December. So it's amazing timing. Beautiful. And hopefully people listening can uh, can purchase uh, their gifts for, for Christmas uh, and whatever they're celebrating because that's such a good idea. And, mm. uh, yeah, how exciting about Melbourne. So obviously that's where I'm based. If you need any uh, Melbourne tips, you might, I'm really good <laughs> at giving cafe recommendations. So that's probably oh, I'm going to need. Yeah, um, I'm going to need Melbourne cafes, restaurant recommendations. Yeah, anything useful. Don't come to me, but cafes, <laughs> I can help you with coffee specifically. <laughs> no, but that's so exciting. Um, huge, huge things on the, uh, in the future for you and for, con- for Consent Labs. Yeah, we're really passionate about this education being accessible to all young people. You know, so sort of by having a team in Melbourne, we're able to work obviously on the ground in a much more accessible way, as well as then start to access regional and rural and remote Victoria as well it's quite hard to do when your whole team is based in Sydney um, because there's cost of travel associated so yeah to be able to actually have people on the ground and and make impact in a much more accessible way is is the ethos of Consent Labs. Yeah for sure well allow me human be this segue the other thing happening in December is the Young Achieve Awards will be in full swing accepting nominations uh, for young people all the way across Australia so, you know, having been a Young Achiever of the Year, being presented up on stage yourself to accept an award and then the following year, you know, giving a bit of a speech and um, sharing your journey and passing on mm. you know, words of wisdom to other Young Achievers uh, the next year. What was that whole experience like, you know, for you being part of it? You know, and, and I guess I kind of walked through it then, but starting from, you know, going to the event and being announced as the winner, was uh, yeah. that a shock to you or were you thinking, I'm in a, a good shot here? No, it was absolutely a shock. It was a really surreal experience. I loved the event. It was just so incredibly inspiring to be able to connect with other young people who are making their mark and making a difference in different ways and in very different ways to what I'm doing. So it was incredibly inspiring and really motivating, actually, to to see other passionate young people. Yeah, it was absolutely a shock to be named the Young Achiever of the Year last year in 2022 because um, I was sort of comparing myself to everyone else and just thinking everyone else is so incredible. But it was, it was an amazing platform, an amazing opportunity. I think, yeah, accolades are really... Accolades and awards are really helpful in continuing to raise awareness for the issues that that I'm working on and in particular championing young people and young people's ability to make a difference and to make a change. I think often young people are dismissed or their voices aren't seen as important or worthwhile listening to because they don't know enough. Um, but I actually think that is a massive disservice and is a waste of the 
the passion, the the talent, the energy that a lot of young people do have. So, yeah, I I loved the opportunity that the awards gave to to platform young people and the the real change that they're bringing about in the world. Yeah, definitely, I agree that you know anytime we get a chance to hear young people speak and you know put their ideas forward is we're all better off for it because often they're looking at things with a much fresher perspective and exactly. come at problems in a different way and a lot of the time it's just like oh yeah that's a, i never mm-hmm. thought of it like that that's such a great you know example mm-hmm. i'm just constantly um getting those examples and uh and yes yeah, so i can't wait to start getting in these nominations and uh hearing all their stories as well Yep, everyone submit nominations. It's honestly, yeah, uh, an amazing opportunity to be to be platformed by, by the awards. Yep. And one thing I want to quickly touch on, like you saying, you know, it's a shock to to be announced as the winner. And you're right, there's so many great stories, but I think it's a testament as well to show people that, you know, if an employer or family member, whoever it is, knows a young person mm. and they think, oh, I don't want to nominate them because they might not win. You know, mm. don't let that hold you back. Um, you never know. Enter them anyway, and there's uh, you know some great things just for being involved um, that come out of it as well. And, yeah, as you said, yeah. you never know. Uh, people are commonly shocked that they were announced as finalists or winners. And I think just even being a finalist and being able to, as I said, meet other young people um, and, you know, other people broadly who are so supportive of these young people, even just being, you know, at the awards night was incredible um so even if you only get that far like that's still a major win yeah definitely well enter at youngachieverawards.com uh angelique thank you for your time uh where can people you know find out more about consent labs or you know connect on socials and and to to, uh discover more and, and support you as well we're at consent labs on every single platform instagram tiktok linkedin facebook um or yes our website www.consentlabs.org.au brilliant well you're doing amazing work you know i don't like when people say i'll keep it up (laughs) but you know what i mean you don't need to be told that because you're like it's your life it's your passion um and hopefully everyone gets involved with charity kringle and uh yeah gets on board that yes please support charity kringle but yes thank you josh this has been yeah a great conversation a great chat I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Inspirational Australians podcast is brought to you by Awards Australia. We recognise, celebrate and share the stories of inspirational Australians through our awards programs across the country. To find out more, to nominate an inspirational Australian in your life or to partner with our awards, visit awardsaustralia.com. If you enjoyed today's story, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate and review to make sure you don't miss an episode and to help our guests reach more people with their inspirational stories.